0: Hello, and welcome to Episode 5 of the LCLC Podcast. The first season of this podcast is devoted to compiling an oral history of the Louisville Conference on Literature and Culture, or the LCLC, a conference that began back in 1972 here at the University of Louisville and continued without interruption for 48 years until the cancellation of the 2021 conference due to the COVID pandemic. I'm your host, Matthew Biberman, and I decided to start this podcast after I was tapped to be the conference's new director in the summer of 2021. This podcast exists as my way both to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the LCLC, an event that will happen with our 2023 conference, while also learning what I need to know to ensure that the conference has continued success into the future. In this episode I conclude my discussion with Stanley Fish. Among all the names that have come to define the great age of theory, few shine brighter than Stanley Fish. When I first met him I felt as if I was encountering a figure who had come to life from out of the pages of a novel penned by Saul Bellow or Philip Roth. At 83 Fish continues to deliver thought-provoking and insightful conversation about the state and fate of higher education in America today. Often thought of as a provocateur, who many blamed for steering English departments into structuring their course of study to favor debate over the appreciation of great literature, Fish has managed to put such a caricature to rest with the publication of his best-selling primer, How to Write a Sentence. So it seemed natural to me to continue our conversation by asking him to talk about how his personal literary tastes came to inform the examples that appear throughout that book. I wanted to ask a question going back to how to write a sentence. My daughter read that book. It was assigned to her as a summer book before the 11th grade in high school here at, uh, in Louisville at Ballard High. I read the book with her and I look back at that experience with great fondness as a special time with my daughter. I was quite surprised by the range of references though. Did you work to make that book expansive or do the examples reflect your personal tastes?
1: Well, they certainly reflect my personal experiences. Uh, That is, uh, I worked to the extent that I went through my library looking for books that might serve uh, uh, as examples. Uh, but my uh, range of reading uh, was fairly wide and I received a a good education, especially uh, at Yale Graduate School, uh, where I was of course asked to read in periods that I never uh, either taught in or or wrote in uh, after that. Um, I considered myself a pale imitation of the kind of educated person one finds and perhaps still finds in Britain. Uh, That is someone who has been widely educated uh, in a variety of literatures, in the arts, uh, in in music, and can discourse uh, with uh, some facility and even uh, with some soundness on a great many matters. My friend, the novelist David Lodge, Uh, for example, um, is one uh, such uh, person. And as I said a moment ago, I was a kind of pale imitation of someone uh, like David. I very much enjoyed uh, writing that book. Uh, It put me back in touch very strongly uh, with the uh, beauties of language, which, of course, uh, are what attracts someone or at least a part of what attracts someone to this kind of work. Um, in the first place. Uh, I remember uh, an old friend of mine, uh, professor of literature at uh, UC Irvine, uh, famous new critic, Murray Krieger, who at a conference, uh, actually at a session of the School of Criticism and Theory, uh, which he uh, invented, uh, stood up and said, "'Isn't it marvelous? "'Here we are every day at our lunchtime Uh, meetings, using just old crummy language, I'll never forget that phrase, but then look at what these people can do with it. Uh, And that's the way I've always felt about it. Um, And uh, that book uh, is, among other things, a reflection uh, of that feeling. It's also a reflection of my unhappiness at the way in which uh, writing has been taught now for several decades in our colleges and universities.
0: Mm -hmm. Did you want to say something about that? The the wrong turn that's been taken?
1: The craft of writing is no longer taught. Or if it is, it's taught in places that have not, excuse me, been communicated to me. And by the craft of writing, I mean the simple questions of what makes a sentence. How do you know when you have written one? How do you know when one that you have written is in danger of falling apart? Uh, And how do you know uh, uh, when to uh, appreciate or deplore the writings of someone else? Uh, Those are the skills and craft of writing, whereas most writing courses are contaminated by ideas uh, or contaminated by readings. Uh, You know, it's a freshman uh, or sophomore writing course, composition course. And what you're given is some kind of anthology, uh, perhaps, uh, of, of interesting pieces. Uh, and, then, and then you talk about it.
0: Uh,
1: now, as soon as content enters the picture, the craft of writing is immediately subordinated. So as I said, say to my students, and I still teach writing, as I say to my students, there will be no ideas allowed in this course, except as the momentary and transitory uh, manifestations of a formal issue. That's mm-hmm. the only way in which ideas enter. And uh, uh, so uh, I, I tried I tried to get people to teach writing that way, uh, but even when I had the power to order them to do it as a Dean uh, at the University of Illinois at Chicago, it was hard going.
0: Well, I feel that and this may strike you as a strange comparison, but that when all is said and done on the writings of Stanley Fish that that book may stand um, in parallel with the way Hemingway thought about the old man in the sea, this little sort of little story that he cranked out in his later years and and it still remains an extremely uh, moving and significant book to me. and I feel that way about how to write a sentence. I think it's uh, just a, a wonderful reminder of the joys of writing.
1: It's, uh, by the way, my only bestseller, so I, I'm eternally grateful, eternally grateful for its existence, and continues. Uh, I'm happy to say, to uh, so, sell uh, year after year, uh, after a- after more than ten years. Well, what is it that Hemingway thought of? Uh, the old man in the Sea.
0: that it may be the one book that uh, that outlives all his others
1: that's interesting that's interesting I, I don't know if there'll be any of my books that outlive anything <laughs> but
0: uh, that's uh, consistent with the way you talked about your work when i was a student of yours in the mid and late 90s that uh that you you shrugged off the idea that your academic work what you talked about really is that you wrote them in the heat of the moment right. to intervene in uh, with passion into a discussion that was engaging your your fellow academics and scholars right. and intellectuals and that when the moment had passed the value of the of your contribution via that essay had passed as well and you didn't expect it to you know see it shelved with the works of cicero or something like that
1: Exactly right. That's what we're doing as academics. We're trying to figure out problems uh, that arise in the social sciences, humanities, uh, and physical sciences. And I suppose now we would add computer sciences to that list. Trying to figure out problems, and those problems uh, have momentary urgencies. To and, and, and in relation to those urgencies, people offer their contributions. And that's what I was doing, or as I put it in the language that I favor because of my identity as a sports junkie, I was in the game. Right. Uh, And that's what I was trying to do, be in the game. Now, lately, however, I've been reflecting, uh, not surprisingly, on the fact that of the people that I engaged with in those years, in those years when uh, you were at Duke, uh, I'm almost now the only one left. This is, you know, this is amazing. Uh, I mean, maybe it's not amazing, but all of the people that I used to regularly engage with or, and uh, both uh, in uh, print and sometimes socially, like, like Derrida and Jeffrey Hartman and um, Harold Bloom and Paul Demont and Jay Hillis Miller um, and everyone else except for, um, uh, well, except for Fred Jameson. Fred, fred is i'm happy to say uh still uh, uh, on this earth uh but uh i'm beginning to feel like the last man standing
0: <laughs> yeah i and and um well well may you continue to stand for uh for a long time to come but thank you you're welcome um i had fred on my committee, you were the chair, and and uh, I was able to finagle him to be the outside of the English department member on that committee. And after the defense, uh, actually, after the, the exam defense, people came up to me and said, I bet that was the first time Fish and Jameson were in the same room together in a long time. And there was this sense that uh, that the two of you did not get along was, oh, entirely was entirely false. We mm-hmm. got along very well. We, we came
1: to the Duke at the same time and not by accident. Um, we received offers and we called each other up. I don't know which of us called the other first to, to, to say, okay, what, what, what do you think about this opportunity? What might the two of us and, uh, you know, whoever else might come along. What might we do? What 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 are the possibilities? Uh, and then uh, I was a faculty member of of, of his department, um, and uh, we co-edited a series for the Duke University Press, and um, we visited each other in various states in which we lived. So no, we were very close.
0: That was the sense that I had in the in the meeting. I didn't sense any. Um oddities or, or, you you know, the, the meeting was very calm except for me, of course, but the the two of you got along just fine. I, I wanted to, I wanted to say that, um, I always at that time looked back at my mentors and thought of your work and Jameson's work as an odd kind of couple in that to me, Jameson, at his best built these these massive books that were like houses or complicated interrelated structures and and often the books were part of you know trilogies and six volumes and so he was this master of these sort of interrelated, complicated structures, and you were the master of the one-off essay. You were, you were like a singles band, and he was like the concept album band.
1: I think that's very good, Matthew. I would have put it slightly differently, not as well. That, For me, um, I find a small problem, uh, and then I go as deep with it as I can. Fine. And then, then the writing flowers out of that and any kind of generality that emerges uh, comes uh, from this single-minded focus, as opposed to starting with a general, perhaps even cosmic uh, perspective, uh, uh, and and, uh, then uh, fleshing it out uh, with particular examples. Uh, You remember that Fred wrote a famous essay on one of the uh, hotels uh, in Los Angeles.
0: Right, uh, the Bonaventure. uh,
1: your description of his work might correspond uh, to that hotel. I wrote a review before I ever met Fred. I wrote a review of the person house of language. I, I don't think I could even recover it today. I don't know where it is or where, where it was published. Um, and uh, it was very, uh, very appreciative of that, uh, of, of that work. Although I had some uh, questions that I would have put to it. So I was an early admirer of Fred's uh, be, before
0: before we met. In how to write a sentence, you talked about Hugh Kenner and mentioned yeah. that he was your chair, I guess, at Hopkins. That's right. And what you repeated was that he his advice was to get the first sentence right, and the rest will follow. And I I wanted wondered if I could get you to talk a little bit about what Kenner was like.
1: Well, that's a good question. <laughs> and I'm not sure I could answer it in any substantive way. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Uh, it was my feeling when I was in the department chaired by Kenner and that I walked into the office that it was a 50-50 chance that he would remember who I was. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even though we had, again, been at each other's houses, especially in a small department, that was uh, inevitable but he lived on some kind of level uh, of general uh, abstract uh, thought um, that uh, I could admire uh, but not approach. And therefore, at least uh, to me, he was um, uh, relatively uh, unapproachable. Uh, He did have one close friend in the department, not that any of us were less than friendly uh, with uh, Kenner, uh, his one close friend was Arnold Stein, uh, a great uh, 16th and 17th century uh, uh, literary critic, as you know. Uh, and they were an unlikely couple. The only thing that I could tell that brought them together was that they were both about six foot three or four. <laughs> so that they could actually, while they were looking down at everyone else, they had to look. And I'll never rem- i forget, uh, are you, uh, uh, Arnold uh, Stein have you ever met him? Have you ever- No. Arnold uh, was, was, was uh, a talker and he had knowledge of all kinds of fields and anything that was mentioned he had a, a treasure trove uh, of information and then of opinion to draw out and it was hard sometimes to end a conversation with him. Uh, so one time uh, he and I the three of us were part of a a PhD exam, uh, and um, Arnold um, went first uh, and asked questions and received answers, and then he stopped. Uh, And Kenner, who was to be next, said nothing, which meant probably that he was asleep. (laughs) He would sometimes fall asleep at lectures. And so he was uh, roused and realized that he was supposed to say something. And he 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 just turned around and said, "Oh, Arnold, I thought you were just in the middle of one of your sentences." <laughs> <laughs> that was a great moment. That's my answer to the Kenner question. Uh, gotcha. uh, you know, a, a formidable, uh, a formidable figure who who, who did a lot uh, for uh, the Johns Hopkins uh, English Department.
0: I wanted to ask you, as a student. Who took your your course at Duke on First Amendment law about your most recent book, the first. If you could tell me uh, how you've advanced your thinking about that aspect of American jurisprudence.
1: Well. I think that the first. As an essay on on a particular part. uh, Of uh, of the Constitution. Uh, fits nicely with what I've come to realize uh, uh, are the constant themes um, in my work. Uh, I've always been interested um, in institutional life, which while not necessarily grounded in eternity or, or in something called Reason with a capital R, nevertheless manages to move forward largely on the basis of its own protocols, so that the institutional life and the work it is able to do is in a sense self-initiated, self-supported, self-sustained. And I'm I'm very interested in the ways in which institutions uh, maintain themselves, um, even though they are, at least according to my account of them, fragile, uh, which is an account that uh, actually uh, as you probably know, as well as anyone else, comes from my reading of Hobbes. Uh, the idea that what you have is a set of settled significations, Hobbes' a vocabulary, and then it's your business to make sure that they are sustained, because they won't sustain themselves uh, without our help. And I begin, I feel the same way about the First Amendment. The First Amendment, as I put it in the book, is not a thing, it's a rhetoric. Uh, It's a collection of phrases and uh, 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 examples uh, and texts. um, And it's based finally on a distinction between speech and action, which cannot be philosophically defended uh, for for five seconds. But nevertheless, it moves on because as, as a fact of our institutional life, it does work we want to be done. So that's the way it's maintained. So there's one set of people who believe in the First Amendment as some others believe in Jesus Christ or Allah or Jehovah. uh, And I'm certainly not in that group. And there are others who believe that the First Amendment is finally uh, the the engine uh, and uh, the agency uh, of political evil uh, and malice of discrimination and other sins. And i'm in the middle there Uh, i'm just saying no the first amendment is this instrument that we create and then that we put to various uses and let's take a look at some of the uses it's put to and that's generally my take on things it's a take for example on the book that you kindly just uh, read uh, of mine my new manuscript on law and the movies i'm just saying hey we have these things they they called movies they have a hold on us uh, let's take a look at some of them and see how it works. Uh, uh, a kind of, uh, I like to think, a, a, a kind of modesty in approach, uh, which may or may not have large payoffs at the end, uh, but begins uh, with a, 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 a fairly uh, minimalist aspiration.
0: I wanted to ask you... Uh a question that is a memory that surfaced listening to you talk just now from the class that I took with you. And it was a conversation that that erupted in class about the nature of voting and that voting was unsigned and that there might be an argument to be made Uh, to secure intentionality and the meaning of the vote. And somehow we were well before Florida and Chad's and figuring out uh, that whole issue and certainly not where we are now in uh, claims of stolen elections, but that you ended up arguing that you could see a case for signed voting. Do you remember that?
1: Uh, I don't remember that specifically, but sh- I, I certainly the, the line of argument is familiar to me, and it ha- would have to do with my distrust of anonymity as a positive value, I put forward in cases like Ohio versus McIntyre, which is one of the key cases. You- where, uh, where uh, an anonymity is part of American freedom, you should be allowed. Uh, you should be uh, allowed to uh, have your say. Uh, without having to identify who you are, which assumed incorrectly, I thought, that the words that you spoke would then mean whatever they did mean, independently of any knowledge of who you are. That's where the intentionality comes in. As you know, I'm an intentionalist, and therefore uh, I, I believe that words have meanings only in relation to intentions, that is to design purposes, we don't say things for no reason at all, except perhaps when we're talking to ourselves in the shower, and even that <laughs> might uh, might not count. Now, the counter-argument, the other argument on the uh, other side is that the secret ballot uh, is, uh, is a feature of modern democracy and is instituted partly uh, in fear of returning to those regimes uh, where your vote was public uh, and there could be rep- retribution visited upon you if you voted the wrong way. So the intellectual argument for there being sign voting is one that I I, I can see myself making. Uh, but of course, the democracy argument uh, that I mentioned a, a moment ago uh, stands against that and probably uh, counts uh, for more uh, in practical terms.
0: Mm-hmm. I remember that day because uh, you're right that the uh, the collective audience of your students, and there were only three non-law school students in the class. I remember we were highly sought after by the law students to try to make sense of of <laughs> of, of, of this of these arguments. Um, was that this was close to a Stalinist position that you were taking. Right, uh, right. And now I look back on it and I go, my God, that was such a prescient moment. Um, we all want to be able to go back in and check that our vote was recorded correctly and is included in the count and the tabulation is accurate now. Um, Fish was right again.
1: <laughs> well, I don't know about that,
0: but but
1: but thank you uh for for saying so but at this moment with the question of the integrity of the vote uh is so much a part uh of of the cultural uh, scene uh proof of voting or identification of those who vote uh, does take on uh, a new uh resonance i'm not as bothered as some others uh uh, who are center or left of center are by the uh, uh policy in some states uh, to require uh, identification in the form of a driver's license uh, mm-hmm. or something else uh, in order uh, in order to vote. I don't see why that's such a terrible thing, although I will acknowledge that the that the people who are proposing it often propose it for terrible motives.
0: Mm-hmm. We've talked some about your advice. Uh, for professors and for residents of the university who we'd like to think of ourselves as permanent residents. We hope that we can be fairly permanent for a while anyway. What advice do you have for the generation of students who are coming up now as college students, particularly those that we think of as natural English majors of students who like reading and writing in the humanities?
1: Well, I can't help answering that question in a larger context than it is posed. Because for years now, I've been making an argument which would seem to me to be obvious and even uh, unnecessary to make, uh, that the business of the university, the college and the university college and the classroom um, is to explore issues uh, and questions uh, that have not yet been settled. In the humanities, social sciences, and uh, the physical sciences, it is not the business of the university at any level uh, to be engaged uh, in political activity, uh, and that any classroom in which the uh, political issues are live issues—that is, issues in which the, to which the students are supposed to to respond uh, by voting or, or affirming or rejecting—is a violation. Uh, uh, is is in violation uh, of of academic protocols. Uh, And often here, I I quote uh, Marx, who said it's our business not to understand the world, but to alter it. And I'm saying, no, as an academic, it's our business to understand it, not to alter it. Maybe some of the things we do will indirectly alter the world in ways that we cannot predict, but that's not our job. Uh, So I would want to say to students, to faculty, what I've said innumerable times, stick to your academic knitting, or as I put it in a way that drew a lot of negative response, aim low, aim low. That is, if you're a professor and or a student in a course, right now I'm teaching a course on religion and the law, that's a vast subject. There are a huge number of things to learn, including history of theology to some extent, uh, the the political history of liberalism and its antagonists. In other sense, innumerable cases, at least in the Anglo-American tradition, uh, where uh, there are twists and turns uh, that have to be uh, studied uh, and uh, evaluated. That's a big task. Teaching a course like religion and the law for 14 or 15 weeks is 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 a, is is in a way an introductory exercise. At the end of that period, you've only begun uh, to uh, understand this material. So why, in the middle of it, are you going off on tangents um, and uh, and and trying to bring what you're teaching into line uh, with some uh, controversial political issue of the day? So my complaint against my fellow academics has been, uh, for some time, that you don't know what your job is. And as long as you keep on trying to do some other job, you won't be doing your job well.
0: Do you feel that the genie's out of the bottle on that one?
1: I'm afraid so, I'm afraid so. Although I have not been, uh, I haven't been in an undergraduate context uh, or a liberal arts context for a long time now, uh, for almost 20 years. Uh, except for one brief uh, interval. Uh, So I don't know what goes on, but I I will say this. The last course that I taught, which was a humanities course about four years ago, was at Florida Atlantic University. Uh, I taught a course for the English department uh, in 17th century poetry. Um, Probably not unlike the courses that you and uh, others uh, took from me at the time. It was only halfway through the course, I I, I wasn't paying a certain kind of attention. It was only halfway through the course that I realized that nothing of what what I was saying or trying to do was getting through to the students at all. Because I was talking, you know, about the way poems work, about uh, uh, genre traditions and uh, uh, how they they grow and how they are used uh, and... uh, how they, uh, how they can be modified and expanded by various poets. Uh, I was talking about the way the poetic line works, uh, what it means to read something in time, and how poets uh, take advantage of that. All of those things, which you, will, I'm sure, uh, find uh, familiar. All they wanted to know was something in relation to race, gender, and class. Because in their other classes, and a few of them came and told me this, in their other classes, that's all that went on. You read a poem or a short story or whatever it might be, and then you, be, you started talking about its contemporary social relevance. So as you say, uh, you know, that horse may have left the barn, that train may have left the station, whatever the, 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 meta, uh, right. the metaphor is. Because I'm continually uh, in a position, I had been in a position, of saying to someone who brings up an issue, but that's not an academic issue. It's not that it's not an important issue. But it's not an academic issue. And if there are no such things as academic issues, if the academy doesn't have a subject of its own and a method of its own, what's it doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, if the academy is just an appendage to politics, then get rid of the all of these classroom stuff and libraries and buildings. Get right to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, as you say, uh, I'm not here preaching to the converted. I'm preaching to those
0: who have been long since converted to another theology. Right. So do you feel a, a little Cassandra-like with all of this? That I can remember you sort of pleading really in, a, in the way that you do that the humanities needed to recognize its profession and that there is another profession of PR people right. and we needed to hire PR people to promote
1: right.
0: this point of view or we're going to lose this battle. Right. And we have lost
1: this battle, but the battle has been lost for complicated reasons, including uh, the reduction of funds to public universities, that is state legislatures. Uh, when I first started teaching, there were many states that supported their state colleges and university to the tune of 70 to 90% of operating expenses. Now it's more likely to be 3 to 7% of operating expenses in many uh, state, uh um, In many states the withdrawal of funds did not come with a a, le- a diminishing of what was expected from colleges and universities quite the reverse more and more was expected we were supposed to do more and more uh, uh with less money this in combination with all kinds of new demands that were not part of the picture back in the early 60s when i came uh into the profession compliance demands it's a whole now a whole a whole universe of Clients demands all kinds of uh, regulations from both state uh, and, and, and the federal government the university continually had to be checking on to make sure uh, that it was doing uh, the right thing. there was there were no uh, safety concerns uh, at least articulated uh, back in the late 50s and early 60s and now there's a lot of that going on in campus and that and that costs money uh, and all of the materials that campuses make use of uh, their prices, uh, those materials prices, um, have risen, and the university uh, is in the market and and is is at the uh, mercy of the market. So that there there are those there are those uh, th- issues. Then there's a the general feeling in at least a significant uh, sector of the public that universities are the seed you know the seed beds of socialism. Or School of immorality. Uh, it's it's like, a, like a contemporary version of Stephen Gossin's school of abuse, that we're, we're, we're all just joined, all of us uh, academics are joined in an effort to subvert everything that is good and true. Uh, and that has been a growing feeling. Uh, and uh, a, a lot of legislatures and governors. Uh, uh, in, in various states uh, are uh, parties to that uh, to, uh, to that uh, sentiment. Then is the amazing, though perhaps not so amazing, fact that in recent surveys when asked uh, young men and women, that is people in uh, high school and in the early years of undergraduate career, were asked What percentage of your time is spent on reading? That is, not reading class assignments, but just on reading. And the percentage has gone down to uh, four or five percent. And uh, uh, a friend of mine, a conservative uh, academic named Mark Bauerlein, uh, is about to publish a book on this very subject called When the Dumbest Generation Grows Up. Uh, which is right now. And what do you have? He asks, for people who have never been asked uh, to read books, who have never been asked to ponder uh, philosophical and large political questions, and um, what are they like now, and what happens to us when they gain control?
0: I as a way to wrap up the conversation, I wanted to come back to Milton, but it yeah. seems like we've already, in a weird way, come back to Milton. Uh, who, his side having lost, retired and took revenge upon the world by writing his immortal poem, Paradise Lost. Do you find yourself coming back to Milton still? And if so, why?
1: I come back to Milton, but not in a direct way because I haven't taught the Milton course for perhaps 20 years now. Uh, But I introduced quotations and ideas from Milton into my law classes. Uh, partly because I feel their relevance, and partly because I feel that law students should at least be in, should at least make minimal contact uh, with uh, with poets, great poets uh, and, and novelists. As I'm sure I was saying long ago in your presence, uh, the uh, absence of distribution requirements has been a disaster and uh, especially a disaster uh, for people like you and me uh, who teach literature in what is called the earlier periods so it used to be the case that of course you had distribution requirements uh, and therefore there were you had to take certain courses that you would never have thought to take um, and the complaint was yes but that will mean that students will be forced into into into, into courses uh, in which they have no interest, to which my reply is, right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's the point. Right. we expand their interest, not to cater to them. Uh, right. So, uh, I always found when I taught Milton that a certain percentage, and you may have found this too, certain percentage of students who came into the class came in with a set of preconceptions, among which were I'm not going to be able to read this because it's written in some almost foreign tongue. Or what is this going to say to me? I'll be in no way uh, engaged with the material. Um, And that lasts about two weeks. And in about the third week, the students are hooked. They're absolutely hooked. They're inside it. Uh, And uh, because of the way in which Milton draws you in, compels you uh, to uh, wrestle. Uh, with the ideas and problems that he's putting uh, forward. So if you give Milton a chance with any uh, audience uh, of students,
0: uh, he will captivate this. As an ambitious student of Fish's, eager to earn his approval, I learned early on that the best way to write a paper for one of his classes was to find a contradiction in Fish's own thought and to then argue for one side over the other. At the end of our conversation, I would submit that we see here a classic Fishian double bind. On one hand, he is certainly right that at least for the foreseeable future, the humanities and such authors as John Milton will generate less and less attention. And yet, he's also right that this outcome will be more detrimental to America's colleges and universities than it will be to Milton and those lovers of art and literature who inevitably find their way to Milton and Shakespeare, and so many others, to have them captivate our souls. Milton managed that feat before he was required reading in our classrooms, and I believe he and others will continue to endure. It is the classroom that will see a certain life force go out of it. If you like this podcast, please hit like and subscribe. Finally, consider joining us for an upcoming LCLC conference. Consult the Louisvilleconference.com for details.